welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. For avid listeners of the show, you might be wondering why you're hearing my voice instead of the voice of the host and co-founder of this podcast, Emma Ashford. And that's because Emma has moved on to a new position as a resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. But we'll get to all that. Uh, fortunately, I have Emma here to talk with me about that and, and much more. Hi, Emma. Welcome back to your own show. Hey, this is this is pretty weird. Good to, good to be back. <laughs> so Joe Biden has won the 2020 presidential election, and we'll be talking about the foreign policy implications of that. You know, Biden has certainly presented a vision of U.S. foreign policy that's distinct from the one put forward by Trump. But there's also a lot of rhetoric that can obscure the fact that there'll probably be much more likely uh, certain policy areas that will maintain continuity through to the next administration. Um, Emma, maybe you can clarify things. What kinds of changes to foreign policy do you see coming uh, in a Biden administration? And, and what are the biggest areas of contrast? Yeah, so um, so thanks for having me on. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, we are a couple of days past um, the election being called at this point. Um, and I, I think, you know, that question about continuity versus change is really the right one. Um, because we, uh, you know, we've seen throughout the campaign that Biden has really tried to draw a contrast with Trump on on a lot of things related to foreign policy. Um, you know, if you if you look at his campaign website, it's all things like you know Biden will restore. U.S. leadership in the world. Biden will reinvigorate U.S. diplomacy. There's, there's a lot of those sort of rewords that he's he's going to, I guess, make American foreign policy great again. Um, is is the gist of Biden's foreign policy, um, but but it's much more a rhetorical difference than necessarily a practical one. Um, so I, I could see, um, you know, we can get into this in more detail, but I could definitely see some areas of continuity with Trump. I think particularly um, the U.S.-China relationship is likely to remain relatively hostile going forward. Um, I think it's also possible that Biden continues with Trump's talks with the Taliban in Afghanistan. And so there's some other areas like that where we might see general continuity, even if the rhetoric shifts. Um, and then there's going to be some other areas where we are going to see a, a, a serious reversal. Um, so I think, you know, US-European relations, for example, Biden is not going to be openly hostile to Europe. Um, but even there, this isn't going to be a return to the pre-Trump norm in foreign policy. So um, I, I think it's a much more mixed picture than people are probably expecting. You know, one of the big things that has driven a lot of debate in U.S. foreign policy uh, lately, um, and uh, including the, the presidential campaigns this time around and last time around, is this lingering global war on terror in the sense that people uh, have been supporting the United States government going into all kinds of countries, uh, particularly in the Middle East. And, um, you know, uh, apparently we are engaged in active hostilities in something, at, at least something like seven countries. Um, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan now seem to have um, extended beyond three administrations, Bush, Obama, and Trump. Um, do you think that a Biden administration might be more likely to begin this shift away from an overinvestment in the Middle East and a concern about terrorism um, to kind of shift foreign policy in a new direction in the 21st century. 
so I think there's been um, there's been a lot of pressure on the on the left, particularly the progressive left of the Democratic Party. There's been a lot of pressure to dial down the war on terror. Um, and, and I think there may be some moves towards that in the Biden administration. Uh, what concerns me is this, um, again, sort of rhetorical reality divide. Um, so we saw this throughout the Trump administration. He repeatedly said he would end all the stupid wars and then he never actually did. He dialed up troop uh, deployments overseas, particularly in the Middle East. Um, and then I'm seeing a lot of commentators around the election talking about how this is the first post-war on terror election or the first post-9-11 era uh, election. But that elides the, the, the fact that we actually still have most of our troops overseas in this in, in these conflicts. And so the, the thing that really worries me is that what we might see is a lot of rhetoric about how America is, um, you know, pivoting away from the war on terror. We're not doing nation building anymore, but we actually maintain fairly substantive deployments in Afghanistan, Iraq, in Syria, um, in various places in Africa. Um, and, and I think the, the perception is that the war on terror has wound down or is winding down when, as you know, sort of the reality is that it's actually still quite a major um, military uh, engagement that we're involved in, and so I I worry that the reality of that on the ground will stay largely the same, even as the even as the public just sort of becomes less and less aware it's actually happening. Yeah, it seems to me what you need to make that kind of shift uh, real and complete is a determined effort to accomplish specific things, and it just doesn't seem like the Biden administration uh, is uh, articulating that kind of uh, deliberate shift. You mentioned China too, um, uh, that uh, the Biden administration will probably continue a, a rather hard line approach. Um, how do you see this playing out? I mean, um, do you think that uh, a typical carrot and sticks approach by a conventional administration like, like Biden's would presumably be um, has a chance to develop and cultivate a, a workable relationship with China or uh, are we in for more tension and, and conflict? You know, I think with most things in, in a Biden administration, it's going to be a question of personnel. Um, because personnel really is policy, and even more so, I think, than in your standard presidential campaign, the, the campaign was just not very forthcoming on foreign policy. They they had a lot of working groups, they had hundreds or even thousands of foreign policy experts producing policy briefs, um, but it basically didn't get talked about. The campaign website, um, campaign speeches, all they really focused on was this general rhetorical, we're going to restore America in the world rhetoric. Um, and that could mean so many different things. Um, and so, you know, I think on China, as on a lot of things, it's really going to depend on sort of who comes into the administration, um, who ends up being Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, and what it is that they're trying to do on China. Um, so, you know, you could see two scenarios, right? You could see one where we get a relatively dovish set of advisors um, to Biden. Um, and, you know, the US-China relationship doesn't become conciliatory again, but they would dial down the trade war. They wouldn't really increase military deployments um, and, and things would probably get a little better in, in general. Um, but you could see the second scenario, right, where we get somebody, you know, we, we get someone like Michelle Flournoy as Secretary of Defense. I think that's pretty likely. Um, and she has talked about how the most important task for the Department of Defense is to be able to sink all of China's ships in 72 hours. So you could see 
this very uh, military-focused set of policies on containing China and great power competition. Um, and so even if the trade war gets dialed down in that scenario, it's not going to dramatically improve relations. Um, so I, I'm a little pessimistic. I, I feel like that second scenario is probably what we're driving towards. So the Trump years were filled with a lot of sound and fury and often a slipshod foreign policy that kind of frequently lacked coherence and uh, even contradicted itself at times. From a kind of 30,000 foot view, how do you see Trump's foreign policy in its historical context? You know, what do you think these erratic four years will mean for, for the future? Yeah, so um, so you left off the end of the quotation, right? Sounded fury signifying nothing. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not actually sure that's necessarily the case, is, is why I mention it. Um, I think Trump the person, Trump the erratic, um, tweeting late at night, shoving the president of Macedonia out the way so we can get to the front of the picture, that Trump, um, you know, that doesn't matter very much over the long term. And I think we're going to move past that and it's probably not going to come back unless Trump himself comes back in 2024. Um, but I actually see a fairly continuous strain um, throughout the Trump administration in foreign policy among his advisors, among senior Republicans. Um, and I think that this is what the Republican Party's foreign policy is going to look like going forward. And that is a foreign policy that is still heavily focused on military means, um, a foreign policy that is really avowedly unilateral. So it pushes back. It doesn't. It, it doesn't want to be involved in multilateral organizations. It doesn't want to be working through the UN. Um, they don't want to be signing arms control treaties. So just very unilateral um, potential for arms races and everything in in that kind of scenario. Um, and then uh, you know again a vision of the U.S. as the world's predominant power and trying to maintain that, but one that is not dependent on norms and values. So this isn't for I think for a lot of these Republican advisors in the administration, for a lot of Republicans in Congress, this isn't about maintaining the liberal international order. This is about maintaining American military primacy, particularly against China for as long as possible. Um, and I think if you look at the writings of various Trump advisors, you look at what people in Congress are saying about this, this is a strain of thought in American foreign policy that is going to persist far past Trump. Um, and so I think that is going to be a big part of the debate um, four years from now, eight years from now, even if Trump himself is is off somewhere in retirement. Um, that's kind of interesting. You know, I think about sometimes uh, the aspects of U.S. foreign policy that are intended to kind of cultivate and maintain America's dominant military and diplomatic position. And some of those things involve working through multilateral organizations and, and doing the kinds of things that the Trump administration has been reluctant to do, you know, acting unilaterally has a kind of cost to it that can undermine one's um, objective of maintaining this kind of dominance. So it's an interesting balance that I think needs to be struck in, in the future. Um, the American people seem to be kind of gradually souring on many of the core elements of this activist foreign policy. But, you know, as we're saying, foreign policy is not really driven by um, populist engines. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a very much of, of, of an elite uh, engagement. And so, I, I, you know, it's a question for me how much the overall public attitude actually influences U.S. foreign policy or just kind of drives it into the shadows. Um, 
along yeah. with that, oh, what did you have something on that go ahead oh sorry no i was just gonna say you know regular listeners of this podcast know that my myself and, and trevor thrall as well you know we debated this you know over the last three or four years we've debated this regularly on this podcast um you know he thinks that polling and and you know mass foreign policy opinion actually matters in foreign policy. And, and I tend more towards the, the view that you just expressed, which is that elite signaling means that a lot of what you're getting back from polling on foreign affairs is just, um, you know, elite views reflected back from the public. Um, I mean, that said, you know, I think there are some, there are times when public polling clearly shows a distinction between masses and elites. Um, and I, I do see that in some of this war on terror polling. You know, two thirds of Republicans um, want to keep negotiating with the Taliban and get out of Afghanistan. It's a much higher proportion of Democrats. So, you know, overall, the American public there is reflecting something that elites are not particularly saying. And in that case, it's probably worth listening to. Yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder what the I think Trevor, where Trevor does get it right is that these things could matter more in a very long term. Um, so as new generations begin to enter politics and, and policy, uh, you know, the preferences might gradually change. It's just I'm, I'm not quite sure that will be on a, a timeline that fits for, you know, the, the international trends that we're seeing uh, that also kind of pressure the United States to conduct itself with greater caution and perhaps even revise down some of its ambitions. So, I mean, what do you think the real prospects are for a substantive restraint oriented change beyond the Biden administration, you know, because Biden uh, allegedly might only last one term. He might not seek reelection. So sort of a, a longer timeline. What do you think the prospects for a shift are? You know, I, I think it's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, so so two things. Um, one is that there is this groundswell of opinion. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like all public opinion. Um, but if you looked at the Democratic primaries, most of the candidates were advocating for a somewhat more restrained foreign policy. Um, so unless that shifts really quite dramatically in the next four or eight years, which I don't really see, then we are going to see a wave of candidates for high office, um, you know, in a decade that are going to be more restrained in their thinking on foreign policy. Um, the, 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 obviously, the, the one sort of caveat to that is, but if it's replaced by being more hawkish on China, that's not necessarily good overall. Um, but I think the second big thing um, is Kamala Harris is a relative unknown in foreign policy. She is kind of a blank slate. Um, and she is very likely to be the front runner. So if Biden ends up becoming a one-term president, as he said, as he's not quite committed, but he said he may well do, and he'll be quite old come 2024. Harris is the obvious front runner, um, being groomed to be the, the president. And you know she's quite progressive on domestic issues, um, but she has no foreign policy experience at all. And so, you know, to some extent, she will probably she'll probably learn and absorb things in in a Biden administration that will help to shape her foreign policy views. But equally, we just don't know what her foreign policy views might be. She might end up being more progressive on these issues or she might end up being quite centrist. And there's there's really just no way to know that waiting a few years to see what it is she actually does and says on foreign policy. The country is still dealing with uh, a pressing crisis of a pandemic. Uh, COVID-19 continues to spike in various places across across the country. And I think in a lot of ways, this 
crisis has had foreign policy implications for the United States. You, we, we talked earlier about uh, multilateralism versus unilateralism. And this is one of those things that doesn't really abide by borders. Um, and so it basically requires uh, collective action between international actors to make serious pro pro uh, progress on it and, and um, uh, you know, create global health. Um, how, how do you think the COVID crisis has impacted U.S. foreign policy, U.S. power overall? Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, obviously, we've all been watching sort of the train wreck that was the, the Trump administration trying to handle the, the coronavirus crisis. Um, and it's something I'll be very interested to see. So we had some really good news. Um, I, I think by the time you listen to this, it'll be last week. But we had some very good news recently from Pfizer, who says that their vaccine is effective. Um, against coronavirus. And so by, by 2021, we may actually be looking at a vaccine. And from the point of view of foreign policy, what I'll be really interested to watch is um, the Trump administration basically pursued um, a course of what you might call vaccine nationalism, right? The idea that American companies, whatever they develop, it would be given to Americans first. Everybody else in the world is going to have to wait. Um, I'll be very interested to see if a Biden administration instead turns around and starts working with some of these things like, um, you know, Bill Gates has a sort of international vaccine consortium where they're, you know, setting up factories and trying to push out vaccines, you know, into developing countries that maybe can't afford the infrastructure structure themselves. And that's something I could see a Biden administration really sort of committing to, um, where a Trump administration would very much have sort of kept everything for Americans. Um, and so I think if a Biden administration does that, it's going to be good for, for the US image, particularly after four years of, of Trump being so hostile pretty much to everyone else in the world. Um, where I think the coronavirus uh, might have more of an impact on U.S. power, though, is in some of the long-term economic implications. Um, so what we've seen is that there have been very few short-term uh, sort of U.S. military or power implications from coronavirus. You know, we had the uh, we had the readiness crises um, around about the time of the the U.S. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, where they had like hundreds of cases on an on an aircraft carrier, um, and there was a scandal in the military over you know whether it should be uh, docked or not. Um, but actually, the U.S. military has recovered pretty well from that. Um, they've uh, if you just look at sort of the the numbers, they've handled coronavirus better than the U.S. population at large has. Um, and because that population is so much younger and fitter and healthier, they're also pretty much recovering at a much better rate. Um, so even now there are, you know, US exercise, military exercises going ahead. So there haven't been any long-term sort of military readiness implications. Over the longer term, though, um, the question is about economics, right? So the economy obviously has taken a massive hit. Um, from the coronavirus um, and has really kind of bifurcated into this two-tier economy, right? So um, people like like you or I, John, who can do our, our jobs remotely, we're still working, doing our fairly normal lives, even if we don't go out very much. Um, but people in more um, service industry or blue-collar workforces, um, the ones that can't necessarily go out to work or where the demand is just not there, you know, shops, restaurants, um, you know, recreation and leisure and holidays and all of these things, um, they're suffering quite a lot. Um, and the stimulus from earlier this summer has, has run out. Um, and I think no matter which way that ends up turning out, it could be a long-term economic problem. Um, so if 
a Biden administration manages to get more stimulus passed, then there are long-term debt and deficit implications of that. And even if the debt and deficit is not a national security problem, and I think you know that's a different debate, even if it's not, the conversation will then crowd out spending on other areas like infrastructure um, that, that actually help to, to produce sort of America's human resource and power base. And so if they don't manage to do stimulus, there's the potential for this long-term economic stagnation or what they're calling a K-shaped recovery, where the American economy basically bifurcates over the long term. And so none of this is good long term for the health of the US economy. Um, and that means that down the road, it could be harmful for um, sort of American power in the world. Um, now, you know, the optimist says, well, maybe that'll force America um, to adopt some more restrained foreign policy. And that would be absolutely awesome if it's true. Um, but the pessimist in me says that no, it's just going to result in military budgets sucking up more and more discretionary spending, tax increases, um, and, and things like that. So, um, you know, so I think we focused most of this conversation on, you know, the presidential transition, a Biden administration. I think actually what happens with coronavirus over the next six months may be more impactful uh, for American foreign policy, you know, in a decade's time. You know, that's very interesting because on the one hand, uh, Policymakers have to deal with the practical implications of, uh, uh, you know, spending on COVID and how that might pressure other uh, budgets. But on the other hand, there's a, there's another way to look for it, and uh, my hope for this kind of uh, uh, insight is perhaps naive. But you know, since we're dealing with this uh, pandemic crisis, it might uh, behoove some policymakers to make note of the fact that perhaps we've overspent or overinvested on the wrong kinds of threats, threats that just are not uh, as direct and as likely as things like uh, global public health and the risk of, of pandemics. Um, and that, that kind of insight, uh, uh, I'm not quite sure, has, has landed. Instead, I think the incentives are more to just spend more in every area and not really worry about debt and deficits, and that's really unfortunate. This last thing I want to talk to you about um, is your, your, uh, your career move. Uh, you came to Cato back in 2014. Do I have that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. September, 2014. And a lot has happened, uh, in DC foreign policy spaces since then. And your move to the Atlantic is, is kind of indicative of some of those changes, right? I think so. Yeah. Um, so you're right. I came, I came to Cato in late 2014. Um, to, to put that in sort of historical perspective, um, you know, when I arrived at Cato, um, Vladimir Putin had invaded Ukraine just a few months before, about six months before. Um, Barack Obama was president. Um, the war in the, the Arab Spring had only been going for a couple of years. The Syrian civil war still looked like Bashar Assad might lose. Um, it was a very different world, um, or perhaps not as much a different world as everyone in D.C. thought it was a different world. Um, and when I came to Cato straight out of my, my PhD, um, I, I came to Cato as, as a fairly mainstream, like realist um, restrainer, you know, in, in 1990, 1991, I would have been a George H.W. Bush Republican. Right. 
fairly mainstream realist on foreign policy. Um, but in 2014, when I landed at Cato, Cato was one of the very few places um, where somebody like me could actually work in DC because of the sort of dominance of either liberal internationalism or neoconservatism in various institutions in the city. Um, and the, the change that John's kind of alluding to and something that I'm, I'm frankly thrilled to see is that that's no longer the case. Um, and so um, I've moved to the Atlantic Council where we're setting up a new initiative. Um, it's called the New American Engagement Initiative. Um, and the idea is basically to talk not just about the things America shouldn't be doing around the world, but how can we actually sort of engage with the world um, without just using our military? How can we do this in a better way? Uh, without just withdrawing from the world. Um, and so there's this in the Atlantic Council, there's the new Quincy Institute um, setting up to talk about restraint more broadly. Um, and there's several other sort of initiatives around the city, all of which are starting to talk about more restrained foreign policy. Um, and so, you know, it really is a very different world in Washington, D.C., in terms of the ideas that you can express in foreign policy and in terms of what's getting traction. Um, and so despite the, you know, sort of the, the, the disaster that was the last four years of Donald Trump, um, I think that is one positive change that, that he actually has contributed is because he basically smashed a bunch of assumptions about U.S. foreign policy um, and then didn't provide any answers, it has left a space open where people um, like me or like John um, could come in and can question what's going on with U.S. foreign policy and try and actually find solutions to those problems. So, um, you know, even though we're going into a Biden administration with a fairly mainstream Democratic candidate, um, I, I am excited that the landscape in Washington has changed. Um, and I think the policy discussions that we're having now are so much more open and varied than the discussions that were happening in, in 2016 when we thought it would be a Hillary Clinton presidency. You know, I remember when you came to Cato. I was in a different position then. I remember we were having some conversation about, you know, writing op-eds or something like this. And you were like, listen, man, I've been in academia a long time. You know, I don't know how well I can write for popular audiences and stuff like that. And that modesty was uh, turned out to be entirely misplaced. Uh, very quickly, Emma became uh, our biggest asset, and she does the think tank thing uh, like she was born for it. So we were sad to see her leave Cato, but you know, I know that she'll have a long uh, career in this space and have have a major impact. And uh, her her time at the Atlantic is is going to be very fruitful. Um, thank you, Emma, for uh, joining and for passing the torch to me on on this uh, podcast. Thank you to our production team, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Jonathan Allen. Thank you all for listening. If you want to continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at CatoFP. And if you like the show, leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.